Welcome to the Healthy Hormones for Women podcast. I'm your host, Samantha Gladish, online nutritionist, weight loss coach, and hormone fixer-upper. I'm excited to bring you a weekly dose of information and inspiration, sharing with you simple and effective strategies from health, wealth, and all things personal growth. Get ready to become the master of your hormones and experience vibrant health to live a life of more power and possibility. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you guys are having an amazing week, that it's off to a great start, that you're feeling good, you're outside, enjoying the summer, the sunshine, the hot weather. It sure is amazing. And man, does it have an impact on your moods. And today, speaking of moods and nature and sun and all of that goodness, we're chatting about digestive health. And yes, nature plays a really huge role in that. So you guys are going to learn more about that and the connection between getting outside and being in nature and even gardening and how this can all impact your microbiome. I'm really excited to dive into our episode today. I interviewed Jillian Tita and she is a naturopathic physician and she is the digestive expert. So we talk about the digestive process from, you know, chewing your food all the way to eliminating your food. And speaking of elimination, we definitely talk about pooping, the importance of daily pooping. Guys, it's so important and it's so important for your thyroid health, your hormonal health overall, especially estrogen dominance. If you're dealing with any symptoms associated with that, you guys are really going to love this episode. So we talk about non-dietary things that you can do to promote digestive health beyond just changing your diet. Of course, we do talk about diet and what you can eat to really optimize gut health and digestive and stool testing and really simple free, free, F-R-E-E ways that you can optimize your gut health, optimize your microbiome, and really support digestion, things you can include on a day-to-day basis that are really going to help move the needle for you. So you guys are really going to love today's episode. And speaking of free, you should join my 10-day detox. It's free, F-R-E-E, all right? And many of you have joined, and I love seeing you guys go through the program. It's just a really simple way to kind of reset, to maybe give your digestive system a break if that's maybe what you're needing and to just eat lighter foods and to support hormones, support energy, better sleep. And it's really just a whole foods approach to supporting your health, supporting your energy and your hormones overall. So if you haven't joined it yet, it is free. Head on over to holisticwellness.ca forward slash 10 day detox. And that's the number 10, one, zero. You guys are really going to love it. We have so many women joining it. And again, it's, you know, it's free. Go through it for 10 days, try it on, see how you feel, incorporate some of the recipes. There's some really delicious, simple recipes in there. And the first three days, we start off with a lot of lighter foods and some smoothies and some soups. And yes, even though it might be summertime and you're eating some soups, we still eat soup during the summertime, especially things like bone broth, which is so incredibly healing for your gut. But you know, soups are just like an all around amazing food to eat, right? Well, meal to really eat. And it doesn't really matter the time of year, especially when we have the air conditioning on, it might be really hot outside, but it can be cold inside the house. And so soup, I feel like no matter what time of year, I always love to include it. And even this time of year, you know, you can include a lot of local veggies. So things like asparagus and zucchini, and you can make some really great, amazing soups out of that. So Enough of that. Let's dive into our episode. First, let me introduce Jillian Tita. She's a naturopathic physician in practice since 2007, helping people heal from all types of digestive distress. She's the creator of the Fix Your Digestion program and 12 other online programs all centered around digestive wellness. Jillian has appeared in a variety of publications, podcasts, and venues, including Underground Wellness, The Model Health Show, Impact Theory, Parade Magazine, Publishers Weekly, and The Huffington Post. She enjoys cooking, reading, and going for walks in the woods. So let's dive into our episode with Jillian Tita. Hi, Jillian. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have you here today. Oh, Samantha, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here too. I would love it if you can share with our audience a little bit more about who you are and what you do. 
So my name is Jillian Tita. I'm a naturopathic physician and an author and someone who loves to garden and write and walk in the woods. My work over the last, I don't know, 12 years or so since 2007 has primarily focused around all different types of digestive health and complaints and things that are related to the gut. So that's a little bit about me. Awesome. Yes, you are definitely quite the expert in all things digestion. How did you develop such a passion for for gut health? Oh, that's a great question. No, it was kind of by accident. When I first started in practice, everybody who showed up for a visit actually had some form of digestive distress. So I began to apply like the good naturopathic principles that I learned in school and helped folks move past and move through these things. And then, I don't know, you sort of get like a little word of mouth thing about town. And, (laughs) you know, I started seeing more people specifically for digestive stuff. And around that time, you know, Facebook was becoming really popular. And so I brought the message online. That actually led to the book deal for my book, Natural Solutions for Digestive Health. And then since then, it's just been, you know, seeing folks and doing a lot of online work and doing fun podcasts like this and that type of thing. So that's really, that's who showed up for me was folks with digestive distress. Right, right. Which is like a 99.9% of the people that I also see. And I'm sure, yeah, that was probably the case for you. So I'd love it if you can take us through, just in really simplistic terms, the digestive process. I mean, how it starts. I know a lot of people think, oh, it starts with chewing. It's like, actually, it's probably, it starts with, Sorry. Yeah, a thought. (laughs) It starts with a thought. It starts with a thought of like, oh, I'm going to be eating my dinner now. And so that brain signal reaches your gut and your gut starts making more digestive enzymes, more hormones for digestion, starts getting all your, your digestive juices percolating. So then you put your food in your mouth, you chew it up, you swallow digestion mechanically and biochemically goes on in the stomach where the stomach acts as like a grinder of sorts. And then you've got acid and enzymes to help break things down as food leaves the stomach and enters the small intestine. You also have bile added to the mix, which helps emulsify your fats. The primary job of the small intestine is for nutrient absorption. It also serves a role in defense, your small intestine lining. And then the large intestine primarily is absorbing water, forming stool, and housing your microbiome. So that is a very like small nutshell, like how digestion starts and finishes with a bowel movement. Hopefully it finishes with a bowel movement, right? Yes. That's the goal. (laughs) Yeah. So that's definitely something I want to talk about. And I know we'll head into it as we start to talk more about the connection between gut health and, and hormones and whatnot. And I really want to go there next because I feel so many of the women who listen to this podcast, they're obviously interested in hormones. The podcast is called Healthy Hormones for Women. And I think that there's just a lot of confusion around how the gut can really impact our hormonal health. I know that so many of the women who join our programs or we coach with one-on-one, they always just kind of look at me with this like glaze over their face of like, why are we talking about gut health? Like fix my PMS or fix my PCOS or I have thyroid issues. Like, why are we talking about this? So can you expand on this for us? Yeah, definitely. And this is such like a really like densely packed topic. So I love it. So here's the thing, your gut acts like the grand central station of your entire body. So it is intimately connected with every other cell and system in your body, including the hormonal system, but also the detoxification system, the immune system, the neurological system, the cardiovascular system. It plays roles in all of these things. Now, specifically in terms of hormonal health, there's two big examples that pop in my head, particularly for women. So the first is the role of estrogen and the gut. So our gut holds two of the big five organs of detoxification, all right? The liver and the large intestine. Our liver is what is primarily metabolizing and sort of neutralizing or detoxifying estrogen, 
So the liver filters all the used and spent estrogen out, kind of neutralizes it and sends it to the large intestine for us to poop it out. Okay. So estrogen is removed from the body via pooping it out. Okay. That's a big, big piece. So if you are not pooping every day, that means that your estrogen is sitting in your stool or the spent estrogen is sitting in the stool. Your large intestine has a blood supply, right? And if the stool is just sitting there, a lot of those compounds get resorbed. They get resorbed back into systemic circulation and they end up back at the liver. Well, the liver is dealing with today's stuff and really it already dealt with yesterday's estrogen and two days ago's estrogen and now it has to do it again. And so in that way, it can impact and sort of exponentially grow estrogen dominance. So a lot of estrogen dominant conditions or symptoms that women might face, like PMS, like acne, like endometriosis, like perhaps PCOS, like migraines, all these types of things can be readily helped by simply pooping every day. So estrogen is a huge piece in terms of that gut health and hormonal fusion. And we can talk a little bit more in depth about estrogen, but the second one I want to mention before I don't forget is thyroid hormone. So about 20%, that is one fifth of your T4 is converted to the active form T3 via activity of your microbiome. The microbiome is that vast colony of beneficial microorganisms that is housed in the large intestine. So if we have a microbiome that is not healthy or not robust or does not have good diversity of strains or is infected with a pathogen or is overgrown with some opportunistic bacteria or yeast, it's arguable that that conversion via the microbiome becomes compromised. And so then if you don't have other great conversion sites on other cellular conversion sites, then you can potentially have a hypothyroid state, like a fake hypothyroid state induced on the body, right? If you lose that one fifth, if everything else is good and you lose that one fifth, your body likely can probably compensate, right? I mean, the body is amazing. The body is absolutely amazing at finding workarounds for virtually everything, but Say you're like super stressed and you're underslept and like, I don't know, you're maybe not eating as good as you normally do. And like all of these other things are not being shored up and taken care of. That one fifth can really be a game changer. So there's an intimate connection between the two for sure. Okay. That was huge and amazing. (laughs) So (laughs) lots of questions that are coming up for me right now. So number one, for the woman that's listening, that's thinking, oh my God, I'm not pooping every single day. What do I do? What do they do? (laughs) Yeah. So that's a good question. I mean, so like one of the best ways to overcome constipation sort of quickly and easily, one is to make sure if people are drinking enough water. And the other is I really like to use the supplement magnesium glycinate. A lot of folks will use different types of magnesium. There's magnesium citrate and all these other types, but I really like magnesium glycinate. And I usually have folks take between three and 400 milligrams before bed. That's what I do. (laughs) You can actually greatly increase that. You know, you can go to 800 milligrams. Like I've even dosed over a gram before of magnesium. Magnesium is very safe, has very low side effects. The worst side effect is loose stool. So I'm not really concerned about overdosing this in constipation. Yeah, because that's sort of what we're looking for is some movements on stool. So that is one of the most important things for constipation is just simply magnesium. It's very simple. And there's other things we can do, but just like right out of the gate, hydration and magnesium for sure. And before we were recording, you said something about laxatives. Yes. Can you just tell me, yeah, that stat again? That was crazy. Yes. So constipation is an enormous issue, at least in the United States, where we spend close to $1 billion U.S. dollars on laxatives alone. That includes over-the-counter and prescription. So one of my friends, Sean Croxton, he, I wish I thought of this, but he thought of it first. He has this thing. He says, do you poop for free? 
and really not a lot of Americans do. About a quarter of Americans are constipated at any given time. And I assume it's probably comparable for folks in Canada as well. It certainly probably. is comparable. Yeah, so, I, I'm curious now to look up those stats. That's, I want you to yeah. look that up. Yeah, That's, share that with me later. Yeah. I want to know how constipated you guys are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely need to look that up. And, you know, I mean, just in the 15 years of coaching women, yeah, I would say like 90 to 95% of the women that come to my practice are constipated. So I'm sure those stats are pretty high here as well. And I can't believe it's $1 billion. Close, a little under, but I mean, that's oh my God. what's really the difference between 900 million and right. <laughs> yeah, that's insane. Okay, so these women these that are coming to you and they're like, okay, I have, I have really bad acne and I get migraines before my period and my PMS is just a disaster. And so they go to the dermatologist yep. for their acne, right? They go to their gynecologist for their PMS, right? Yeah. They go to neurologist for their migraine when really what they have to do is just simply poop and go to the bathroom. And that will take care of so much. That's huge. Instead of getting on like three, you know, getting on like, yeah, you know, three different in and three different medications and we're going to give you an antibiotic for your skin and all of these types of things. Totally. Your thyroid hormone yep. is converted to the active form yep. via activity of the microbiome. Right. Okay. So a fifth, it's not a ton but it's right. not insignificant either. For sure. For sure. Especially, I mean, I know from in my case, I have autoimmune Hashimoto's and, you know, the gut, especially with autoimmunity, plays such a huge role in our thyroid health and our immune health. Our immune system lives in the gut, right? So I know so many women who are diagnosed with autoimmune Hashimoto's, yes. they don't understand how supporting the gut is important. They're looking at ways to support the thyroid, which is important as well, but it goes so much beyond that. So for the woman that's listening who, like myself, might have autoimmune Hashimoto's or is dealing with hypothyroidism, what are some strategies to supporting the gut? Would you say same thing as getting in your magnesium, getting in your water, or are there other things to look at specifically for thyroid? So definitely daily pooping has to be on the books. Right. Across the board. The other issue with something like Hashimoto's or any type of autoimmune disease, particularly if there are also any GI symptoms present, okay, like like constipation or, you know, or what have you, it is very important to maintain a healthy and robust microbiome. So in some cases, particularly if there are GI symptoms, I will order like a stool analysis to see if there is dysbiosis present. Okay. So dysbiosis simply means any type, any type of imbalance in that microbiome. It could be too few good guys. Mm-hmm. Frank pathogens could be present. Right. Opportunistic, fast-growing bacteria or yeast or whoever could be there because flora is low, right? So you have like your opportunistic crew, yeah. and then you have like your frankly pathogenic crew. It could be that there's a translocation of bacteria. So there's all different ways to have dysbiosis. When dysbiosis is present, that often induces a greater than normal level of inflammation in the lining of the GI tract, okay? That increases intestinal permeability, right, aka leaky gut. Right. Now, I'm going to go sidebar. Five years ago, I was called a quack for even mentioning leaky gut, and now it for sure integrated into like virtually all GI diagnoses, like even folks that have type 2 diabetes and depression have. Right intestinal permeability. So then with that increased intestinal permeability, that allows an inappropriate mixing of your immune system and any type of antigen, whether it's food or bacteria or what have you. And then that in turn creates more inflammatory molecules, signaling molecules to the other immune system, like, hey guys, come over here. We need to kick somebody's butt. Like someone doesn't belong over here. And so that cycle maintains itself. And eventually what can happen is a process called molecular mimicry, where yeah. the immune system makes an antibody to our body's own tissue, like the thyroid or the RNA or whatever, because protein structures are redundant. And so a lot of the foods we eat actually look similar to our own native tissues. And the immune system makes like a little mistake 
Yeah. And it makes an antibody instead of to a food, which is a normal process, a normal thing, it makes it to our own tissue. And then unfortunately it's like game on yep. with the system, unless you can interrupt that. And there's other things that go on, like the T regulatory cells kind of get lazy and like stop doing what they're supposed to do. And there's other like sort of things that are going on there, but that's kind of the core issue with autoimmunity. Yep. The other thing is if there is a motility issue, if it's constipation or if it's the other end of the spectrum, if it's diarrhea, those motility changes also induce changes in the microbiome that foster the environment that it's in. So in other words, if you're constipated, your microbiome is going to be selecting and choosing strains to have that can thrive in a slow environment. Hmm. That worsens dysbiosis. And then the same is true for diarrhea, right? Like strains that can live and survive in a fast environment are what are selected for. So it's like your microbiome is constantly evolving and changing based on its environment. The environment includes not just like what you're eating and what you're exposed to in the immune system, but also the motility and the regularity of your gut. And so then if that dysbiosis is, is enhanced, then that whole process that I just described is also enhanced. Right. So in terms of thyroid, ladies, you want to make sure you don't have dysbiosis. You want to make sure your microbiome is like healthy and robust and non-infected and not overgrown with any like opportunistic friends. And you <laughs> want to make sure you're pooping every day, like not too little, not too much, right? Right. And it, a lot of the recommendations are similar. Yeah, but it's because a lot of the mechanisms that set up the pathology is similar. Right. Like leaky gut, things like immune overactivation, things like dysbiosis. Yeah. Like those are very general things. Well, they're specific, but they are found in an enormous array of health conditions that are not just confined to the GI tract. Right. Right. And so speaking of gut testing and stool testing, what do you specifically recommend for that? So yeah, yes, there's two options for stool testing. One is a microscopy based, like a microscopy and culture based right. analysis. This is where essentially they are collecting your stool, growing it out in a medium, like in a Petri dish, and then seeing who shows up. Yeah. Okay. And a lot of these also will come with a culture and sensitivity test where if they find a bad guy, whether it's a yeast or a bacteria or a parasite, they'll grow that out and then they will challenge it with conventional and natural antimicrobials, whatever it is. So it will often tell you like how to kill something if it finds it. So for the microscopy and culture-based testing, I really like Genova Diagnostics. There is something called the Comprehensive Digestive Stool Analysis that does like all of your flora, good guys, bad guys, but also does other markers of like digestion and metabolism and inflammation. So you get a really broad, broad look. And then they have a panel that's called the microbial ecology panel, which just looks at your flora. So good guys, bad guys, they're not looking at like enzyme output or if you're spilling fats or those types of things. Right. So there's a price difference there. But for folks who are like just looking for dysbiosis and don't want that bigger picture, then the microbial ecology is a good choice. Then you have PCR testing. PCR stands for polymerase chain reaction, which is just to say it's a type of genetic probe where when you collect your stool sample, instead of looking at it under a microscope and growing it out, what they're doing is they are harvesting it. They're looking for DNA of microorganisms. Right. And parasites and stuff, I guess. And so it's a little more sensitive specifically for things like parasites because parasites are not shed in every bowel movement. Right. Right. But if their little bodies are in the gut, their DNA is going to be in the stool because all living things are constantly, we're constantly shedding our DNA constantly. So it's more sensitive for parasites. And I also find that more sensitive for assessing the healthy microbiome or like the healthy bacteria that are present. A lot of the mediums that the microscopy and culture stool tests are based on will grow in a medium that does not prefer like lactobacillus. So a lot of the a lot of the bacteria that are anaerobic, like they grow in low oxygen environments, often are misrepresented in a low way. 
in the microscopy and culture stool test. Does that make sense? It's because it's like they're preferentially growing out the wrong things. Right. So like none of these tests are perfect, but I would also say that like no test is perfect, whether it's a blood test or whatever. But I use those two tools a lot, especially in folks who maybe we've been working together for a little bit. We've already sort of tuned up the diet. We've already introduced, I don't know, enzymes and we're getting people sleeping and walking and like doing all those things. And if we're not getting great, great movement in the direction that we want to be moving in, then I'll often recommend stool testing. For sure. You find all kinds of interesting things. Yeah, absolutely. And then the great thing is it can really help to clarify your protocols and be really individualized moving forward, right? Absolutely. And it saves time and money. So even though they're a bit of an, you know, they're anywhere between like $150 and $350. Right. And you know how fast you can rack that up, like buying supplements. Totally. Like for example, so many people are like, I have candida. You know, it's like, because we hear that in the natural blogosphere and like they go on Instagram and like everything gets blamed on candida. And it's like, it's fine if you do, but let's see, let's see if you do. Right. So it also helps to clarify things, right? Like let's rule things in, let's rule things out for sure. So let's go down this candida route now that you brought it up. Yes. Because I know you launched a new candida program. So maybe we can start with talking about what candida actually is and then share a little bit about your your program. Mm -hmm. So candida, I'm specifically talking about candida albicans. That's your potential pathogen. It's a yeast. It is part of a normal human gut flora. Right. Issues can arise in with candida if it overgrows. And normally it overgrows because one of our defenses is breached, whether that's, and usually that's due to an antibiotic knocking out your beneficial flora. Mm -hmm. If you think about that large intestine as a parking lot, you want all of those spaces filled with good guys. And so if you take an antibiotic and knock some of those good guys out, the highly opportunistic, fast-growing microorganisms are going to move in. And candida is something like that. So is bacillus, which is a different organism, but there's lots of sort of opportunistic guys that will slide right in and colonize and reproduce. So here's the thing about candida. You absolutely want to test for it. You want to do a stool test to confirm or deny presence of candida in the gut. Blood test showing antibodies is not diagnostic. It just simply means that your immune system has seen candida and I would say that 92% of us have antibodies to candida because candida is ubiquitous, meaning it's everywhere. Right. If you see that candida is present in the gut, it's actually very easy to get rid of. Like an isostatin or a diflucan, or there's about 15 herbs that work fantastically. So in my experience, if candida is actually present in the, the cause, it's extremely easy to treat and eradicate. What can get more complicated is if maybe there's candida overgrowth and maybe some other overgrowth of like other organisms and your native flora is low. That's when things get more complicated. Right. We still want to hang our hat on the candida nail. I don't think that that's like medically or clinically, I don't want to use the word ethical, but I think we way overemphasize candida. And I think we emphasize the wrong types of information about candida. Right. And I think we created like a culture that thinks that everybody and everything has candida. For sure. For sure. And I, I often hear from a lot of women who are like seven months into a candida protocol or eight months. And it's just like, I can't eat this and I can't eat that. And it's like, yeah. yeah. And I'm just like, like, it's probably not candida, honey. There's probably other things. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So going back to gut healing, I want to really just dive into sort of the optimal gut healing diet. And maybe what we can focus on is the foods that we absolutely want to eliminate Mm -hmm. to really optimize our gut health. Yeah. So, well, and that's, this is a very broad question that's heavily nuanced because the truth is there is no like one size fits all optimal for everybody. So I'm very much into like individualized experiments for sure and experience, but to get there, you do need a framework, right? And so when I begin to work with someone and we're doing a gut restoration program, like we're just doing the whole overhaul some of the big guys that I look out for for an elimination diet are things like gluten, soy, sometimes dairy products, 
white sugar, of course. And then depending on how much they eat of those things, things like beans, corn, eggs, those sorts of things. Right. If someone comes in and they already have, say, like a diagnosis of SIBO or SIBO is small intestine bacterial overgrowth or irritable bowel syndrome, I'll often recommend a lower FODMAP diet, but that is sort of the framework. And even those big, those big, I call them bullies for elimination, it's often also based on people's report of their diet diary, like what they're reporting that they eat. And so I try to individualize that a little bit. And then you want to make sure you're eating lots of vegetables that you can tolerate and enjoy Mm -hmm. as healthy. And by healthy, I mean organic or pastured or grass-fed meats and animal products that you can afford. And then healthy fats and then starches that work for you, whether those are coming from fruits or non-glutinous grains or starchy veggies or root veggies or what have you, and then lots and lots of hydration. So that sounds very simple and basic, and it sort of is, right. but that's, that's the ground from which I start. And I've noticed a lot of folks have issue with either gluten or dairy, or it's the combo of the two, where they can have a little bit of gluten and be fine, they can have a little bit of dairy and be fine, but if they have something like They go to a party and have like cheese and crackers or they have a pizza or they have like mac and cheese. It's bad for them. Right. So the combo together is where the issue really lies. Okay. Yes. That's interesting. That's good to know. I don't think anyone has actually ever said it in that way. And I'm sure that that's going to be huge for a lot of people listening who are like, oh yeah, sometimes I do eat bread and I and I'm okay. Yep. Or I have the yogurt and I'm okay, but the actual combination together. Yep. Or like ice cream. I'll find like people can do dairy okay, but like they cannot do ice cream. And I really think it's that combo of like lots of milk and then just the sugar, like the high sugar content. Yes, for sure. I'll have folks try like one of the low sugar ice creams or like, you know, like a halo top or something like that to see what is it? Is it the dairy or is it the combo? Right. That's good to know. So let's just have the gluten talk real quick. Mm -hmm. What is it really doing Mm -hmm. to the health of our gut? Well, so here's the thing. In someone that can tolerate and eat gluten, it's fine. Like gluten is not universally terrible for everybody. I do start with it, again, for an elimination diet with folks with GI distress. But I do also want to be really clear and say that like I don't subscribe to the belief that like gluten is a toxic molecule that needs to be avoided by all humans forever and ever. Mm. But what it does, and it's also very important for folks with autoimmune disease. So don't let me forget that. Yes. <laughs> so in terms of, of the gut, here's why it's gluten is an issue for the gut. One, at least in the US, the way that our agricultural processes are, our hybridization over the last decade, since about the fifties, we have been trying to increase the protein per hectare of wheat right? Right. So we're breeding the plants that produce the most protein, which is a good thought because it's like, okay, most bang for your buck. Like we want to, you know, get this like protein density out into the populace. But the sort of unintended consequence of that is that the gluten molecule itself became a very long, dense, tangled molecule. So it is resistant to digestion. It is resistant to both acidic and enzymatic digestion. If you have partially broken down, right, not fully broken down amino acids, right, amino acids are the building blocks of of protein, okay, and gluten is a protein, right, what happens is one, the small intestine likes things in teeny tiny particles, not partially broken down. So the small intestine can get a little irritated, right, you can some irritation, some gas, some bloating. The other thing is unbroken especially protein molecules, are also more attention-catching to the immune system. And then they are more fermentable to the gut flora. So right there, you have what's that three layers of what gluten can do to the body in terms of digestion. Now we think about wheat. Wheat is one of the grains that contains gluten. Wheat also contains starches, that are also very resistant to digestion. And there's one particular starch called amylopectin A, which basically increases insulin resistance, and they call it like the pre-diabetes starch. 
So that's what goes on in terms of digestion. And then in terms of autoimmunity, the work of Alessio Fasano, I think he's up yes. Massachusetts General Hospital now. His lab, he started at the Celiac Research Center, I think in Maryland, and his work has very clearly showed that in folks with any type of autoimmunity, gluten increases intestinal permeability because it increases another protein called zonulin. And I know that sounds like some like alien, alien yeah, totally. or something like, like Star Trek or something like zonulin and gluten and all of that. So totally. gluten will increase zonulin and then zonulin in turn increases intestinal permeability, which then if we remember a couple minutes back to what we were just chatting about, the increased intestinal permeability stimulates the immune system, which in turn makes antibody communication molecules, inflammatory molecules, which causes and that the whole cycle repeats itself. So that is the gluten talk in a nutshell. <laughs> okay, awesome. <laughs> yeah. So going back to what you had said about how, you know, if you can tolerate gluten, then by all means eat it. So I guarantee I'm going to get a flood of people sending me messages saying, well, Jillian said I can eat gluten, so I'm going to eat gluten. <laughs> so I just want us to get really clear here for people listening. So number one, if you have an autoimmune condition, avoid it. Right. Yes, at all costs. Number two, would you recommend people go and get the zonulin test? Like, What mm. would be the ideal way to figure out whether you're sensitive to gluten or not, and if you should really be consuming it. An elimination challenge diet. Okay. Is, yeah. I was curious if, if you actually thought that was the best route. Okay. So in terms of, and then also with gluten, we have to mention celiac disease, right? So yes. celiac disease is an autoimmune condition in which upon exposure to gluten, the immune system destroys the villi, the lining of the small intestine. But What's fascinating is that celiac disease can develop at any point in a person's life. It used to be thought of as like as a disease of childhood that it would onset in childhood. This is not the case. It can happen at any time. And what they found out is that for celiac disease to manifest, you have to have the genetic predisposition, but then there has to be some type of injury to the gut. Like the gut has to become compromised and then you need the trigger, which is gluten itself. Okay. So for testing for celiac disease, a couple things. One, the person has to be eating gluten before they get their blood test. They have to be eating gluten for about six weeks. This is to make sure that their autoimmune antibodies are nice and high. Right. And then you do a blood test, usually anti-endomesial antibodies or EMA it's called, anti-gliadin antibodies, and then something called tissue transglutaminase. Those are usually like the first level of testing. If those come back positive, then a biopsy is recommended of stomach, small intestine to look for that blunting or that destruction of the villi. So that's celiac disease. And then the treatment is just a gluten-free diet for life. Right. It could be in our lifetime that biotech develops something to cure celiac disease I think actually that could happen in our lifetime. So that's kind of cool. So stay tuned if you have celiac disease. Hmm. And then beyond celiac, there is something that's called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And right. that is a real thing. It's even in like the super conservative, like journals of gastroenterology. It's been in there for years and years. The thing is, there really is no great test to confirm or deny blood test or stool test or whatever to confirm or deny non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Plenty of people that have non-celiac gluten sensitivity don't have any antibodies against gluten or any type of thing like that, right? The immune system works in mysterious ways. So really the way to assess that is by an elimination challenge diet, which essentially is like four weeks, at least strict elimination, like trying not to get cross contaminated, watching your symptoms, maybe doing a little bit of other gut restoration techniques like taking digestive enzymes with your meals, having probiotics and fermented foods, maybe taking like a gut lining repair product to just kind of like, right. kind of like reset everything and shore everything up. It's almost like creating a, a clean slate from then which to challenge on and your body will let you know. Totally. And in some cases it's 
like, no, I can't have any gluten at all. In other cases, it's dose dependent where it's like, all right, I can maybe have a little bit a couple times a week, right? And then that can change over time too. Right. So that the non-celiac gluten sensitivity issue is way more nuanced and like contextual than diagnosed in celiac disease, but it's definitely something that we need to address because it's just as wrong to say, oh, if you don't have celiac disease, you can eat as much gluten as you want, as it is to say like gluten is toxic and no one should eat it, right? Like those two things are both like equally nonsense, at least in my own mind. Right. So there's a whole spectrum of sensitivity there. Right. So you eliminate it for four weeks. Yep. And then reintroduce it. Yep. And then, I mean, the thing is symptomatically, it's going to show up so differently for each person. Yes. So what I would say is if you introduce it, and there are no ill effects, you feel great, your mind is clear, your joints feel great, your muscles feel great, your mood is stable, you don't get bloated, you don't get gas, like you don't have bowel change. I'm going to say you can tolerate gluten. It doesn't mean you like eat gluten three times a day, seven days a week, right? For sure. Because of course, you could have the whole conversation like these foods can displace other foods, right? But part of like a quote balanced diet, right? There certainly are avenues to have gluten. But if you do that challenge and you notice like you immediately blow up and like you're really bloated and like you're getting very uncomfortable and like now you're having diarrhea again and like you're itchy or like you're feeling squirrely or you're getting anxious or like you're super irritable, like those are all or like your skin breaks out. For sure. Then I have people re-eliminate, usually for about another two weeks, and challenge again. Right. Makes sense. And if all those things come up again, I'm like, all right, let's cool it and lay off like for at least three to six months. You can re-challenge again at that time if you want. Because again, sometimes it's really just creating like time and enough gut healing for us to tolerate those foods again. For sure. And I'm glad you mentioned, you know, anxiety and mood or acne, because a lot of people don't realize that those can be symptoms, they instantly think, oh, I'm not bloated or I don't have gas, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. But it can show up in so many different ways. Yes. So when we when we challenge if symptoms are new or if current symptoms are increased, to me that is like a positive, meaning like a positive test, meaning like you you initiated symptoms, like there were symptoms. Right. Okay. So I'm glad we got that out of the way. <laughs> okay. So everyone, remember, not that we're saying you can go and eat it. Got to be really clear on that one. I don't want to get all these emails. and Especially with people with autoimmune disease. Like that, that's kind of a closed door. But like for folks, yeah, for everyone else that doesn't have GI distress and doesn't have autoimmunity, that's, that's where you're at. Okay. Awesome. Okay. So switching gears here, I was reading in your bio that you had mentioned you spend a lot of time growing up in the forest and being in nature. And I know that nature plays a really huge role in the health of our microbiome. So I would love it if you can share more about this. Well, it's cool because I garden a lot and soil and like just our forests and what grows in the earth. It's a fabulous metaphor actually for the gut, right? And like our microbiome, it's what transmutes inputs into life. And it perpetuates this like wonderful cycle of life. So I've always enjoyed being connected to that because it's easy to see the rhythms, like the natural rhythms that we have. And then you can be a little more forgiving of yourself, like when you're not always like 100% energized or just like crushing it or like productive or creative or what have you, because you see like, oh, well, nothing in nature is active 100% of the time producing fruit 100% of the time. So observing nature my whole life has really given me a lot of insight into gut health and just overall health and wellness. Not to mention that spending time in nature has been shown to decrease stress, decrease cortisol, lower blood pressure, like lower your waistline, balance the nervous system, and help keep a daily bowel movement. So, <laughs> which is amazing, <laughs> which is the goal. right. No one would really, <laughs> would really connect the dots there about nature. And <laughs> okay. So I have lots to say about this. So number one, I love that you said in your bio, 
I tend to the gut as I tend to my garden. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> That's so good. And okay, I know that you have spoken before about Shinrin Yoku. Yes, that's forest bathing. Tell us more about that. All right, so Shinrin Yoku is a Japanese term and it means simply forest bathing. A lot of the research that is coming out that is showing like the stress reducing effects of nature is actually coming out of Japan. And so the deal is if you go for a daily walk, and it doesn't even have to be a super long walk, and you can see or be in nature, trees or greenery, flowers, a park, whatever, that has been shown to balance sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system activity and decrease the negative effects that excess cortisol can have on the brain. So it's amazing. So it's actually one of my number one recommendations for folks is to go a daily walk, preferably outside if they can. Again, it's so simple, but things that are simple aren't always easy, right? Because like walking every day. But I often will say to folks, if they do that every day for a year, they will change their life. I love that. Yeah. It is a recommendation I give to a lot of clients, Mm. myself included. So we used to live in a condo and we were basically living in the sky. We were like 27 floors above above the ground. And we recently just moved into a house. And honestly, it has made the biggest impact on my health and my well-being, just being able to walk outside into my backyard and walk on the grass. And we are around so many amazing parks and hiking trails and all of that. It's just that alone has made such a huge impact. So I'd love to talk about more non-dietary things that we can do to promote digestive health beyond just changing our diet. So number one, yes. getting outside, going for a walk. Yep. Just getting out there and it helps you more be more grounded, right? I've been using the daily walk myself for years, ever since I think I was in my early 20s and in college and I always had a dog, right? So I would always Amazing. walk the dog. So it's just something that I've always, always done and have only in the last 10 years or so seen like the therapeutic benefit of that. So everybody go for your, your daily walk. The other thing, and I, I'm sure you've already spoken to your folks kind of like ad nauseum about this is to make sure that you are sleeping, right? Like mm-hmm. you want to go to bed before 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Like seriously, 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 especially 11 o'clock is kind of that firm cutoff point if possible. I know a lot of folks work third yeah. shift. I know, you know, there's people that have kids. Like there's a lot of factors that interrupt our sleep. But if you are sitting on your phone at 1030 at night, like scrolling Instagram, or you're like, oh, I just need to look up this thing on YouTube. No. Like if you're watching television, no, that all has to go away. So kind of guarding bedtime, keeping to a close wake up time, right? But not being afraid to sleep in. Also, like if you feel like you have some sleep debt going on. So sleep is absolutely key for digestive health. And that's yes. because when we sleep, our parasympathetic branch of our nervous system, that rest and digest branch becomes more active. And that is what is helping us repair and regenerate ourselves. And it's when our gut is active. And so if we are missing out on that time, that means that we spend more time in sympathetic or fight or flight mode. And that has a lot of negative consequences for gut and overall health and wellness. Another thing is we can change the way in which we eat. And by that, I mean When you eat, you want to sit down like in a chair or on a bench. You don't want to be standing, okay? Take a couple deep breaths before you begin eating. This also helps activate the parasympathetic nervous system and gives your brain a chance to tell your gut that food is coming. And then I have people eat slowly, like putting their fork down or putting the smoothie down or whatever in between bites and chewing the food really well, like until it's soft. So you don't need to count bites or anything like that, but you want to make sure that you're really breaking down your food with your teeth. And then that also, by slowing down and chewing your food well, it reduces the likelihood of overeating. Like when we're eating really fast, you're way more likely to overeat. And overeating is a big cause of gas and bloating. 
right? Because we like literally overwhelm our body's capacity to digest. And so we experience like a lot of fermentation and belching and such. And then let's see what else. Oh, this is kind of a big one is using antibiotics judiciously. So a lot, I cannot tell you how many people come to me and all of their woes began when they had that first or that third course of antibiotics. And here's the thing. I am not anti-antibiotics. They have their place. They're lifesavers. However, they are indiscriminate killers. So they are not only killing the bacteria that's creating infection in you, they're also creating or killing your beneficial microorganisms as well, your beneficial bacteria. And that can set the stage for overgrowth and dysbiosis. So if you have to take an antibiotic, make sure you actually really need an antibiotic, meaning like you have a confirmed bacterial infection. A lot of times you can ask your doctor also for a culture and sensitivity test where they'll take a sample. Maybe it's your urine or like your sputum or what have you. They'll grow out that bacteria and they'll test it against antibiotics to see which one works the best. So you don't need to take multiple courses or like three different ones until we find what works. And all of that increases risk for antibiotic associated diarrhea and C. diff. And like, you're just blowing out your microbiome. What else? Oh, and then lastly, when for antibiotics, you always want to take a probiotic alongside. Right. The probiotics do not reduce the efficacy of the antibiotic. The antibiotic does not kill all the probiotics. What the probiotic does is buffer against those negative side effects. It helps buffer the microbiome against number loss. So if you have to take an antibiotic, take a probiotic alongside, and I'll often have folks take it for two to three times the the length of the course. So if you need a seven-day course of doxycycline, I'll have someone stay on a probiotic for three weeks, and one week will be that overlap week. If folks... Got it. Have already taken an antibiotic, and they're like, "Oh, geez, I think, I think that might have messed me up." You can take a probiotic anytime, and I actually would encourage folks to take a probiotic, like if they feel like that's the issue. With all the stool testing that I do, I see that a big, big issue is just like low beneficial flora, and it's because, at least in the U.S., we write so many antibiotic prescriptions. And there is an element of overprescription or like unnecessary prescription. That's more common in the pediatric population though. Right. You know, like for ear infections or like, you know, the doctor just wants to do something to make the parents feel better. For sure. What are we setting these little kids up for? Yep. Yep. I know. It's crazy. So I know they're not antibiotics, but Advil and mm-hmm. Tylenol. What about people who are just like popping those on the regular? Yeah. If you are taking those a couple times a week, every week, that can be really harmful to the lining of your gut. So that can really increase the likelihood of ulcers and reflux and like the inflammation of the lining, particularly of the stomach. It seems like the NSAIDs are really hard on like the stomach and the first part of the small intestine. And then if you have something like colitis or inflammatory bowel disease, those are like a disaster also. For sure. I know. And it's tricky because those things, you know, if you're in pain, it's like those things work. And so you constantly have to, you are like constantly balancing the risks and benefits of that. But if you need to, I don't know, take an Excedrin because you have a headache, like, I don't know, once in a while, that's not an issue. For sure. What we're talking about is like chronic, regular, consistent use can be really, especially if you already have a sensitive gut, you know, everything is going to hit you in the gut even if it's like kind of not connected or doesn't intuitively seem connected. For sure. But it's kind of like all roads lead back to the gut. Yep. Absolutely. Well, you shared some amazing free ways (laughs) that we can support our gut. Going for a daily walk, sleeping, changing the way you eat. I mean, these are things that everybody can do. And like you said, I think because sometimes they're so simple, we... We tend to overlook them. And and yeah, I have said it many, many times on the podcast before <laughs> about sleeping and you know getting out in nature. And I do think we tend to undermine them yep. because we feel like the things that are free or simple aren't actually going to have that much of a big impact, but they actually have the biggest. Yeah, or we don't value them because they are free. Right. We'd rather be on like a super expensive and fancy like juice cleanse detox or what, you know what I mean? <laughs> so... So, for sure. 
Yeah. Yeah. Which won't work if you're not sleeping and you're stressed and you're not outside. And yeah. No. And also actually for your listeners, do not do any type of liver cleanse if you are not having a daily bowel movement, guys. Okay. Yes. One more time. Do not do any type of cleanse if you are constipated. Yes. Thank you for that. (laughs) Awesome. So tell us more about your book, Natural Solutions for Digestive Health. Natural Solutions for Digestive Health is my book that I co-wrote with Jeanette Bessinger. She did all the recipes that you you will very much appreciate the work that goes into that. (laughs) And it's broken into several sections. So the first section is basically like a rundown of organ by organ digestion and what sort of things can go right and also go wrong in each organ there. The second part is sort of like the downfall of modern digestion, all the different factors that contribute to our current state of digestive trashness, pretty much. The third part is my gut restoration program that includes like the protocol and Jeanette's recipes and all of those things. And then the last section is all different types of conditions. So basically things that you would put on top of the gut restoration program, if you were constipated or having, you know, like fat loss resistance or what have you. And then the very last section is all about, it's the pediatric section, all about the digestive concerns of children. Mm. So it's very comprehensive. It's a great resource. I'm ready to write like version two, because now there's like so many things that I'm like, oh, but what about this? I got to add this in and this. Right. But yeah, I'm really proud of it. It's a good book. It has an apple on the cover. (laughs) (laughs) I love apples. Pectin is so good for your bowels. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, I can't wait to get my hands on it. I have a really random question for you. The carnivore diet. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on this? Because I've been hearing so much. I was actually just speaking with a girlfriend about it because especially from a microbiome perspective, yeah. not getting in the veggies, not getting in those fats. Like, yeah. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, so here's my thoughts on it are pretty much my thoughts on everything, which are, it depends, right? So for some people, they are going to thrive and like crush it on this diet. Totally. I actually have a friend who has been keto or carnivore like for years and years and he like wins these bike races and is like an incredible athlete. So it truly depends on your own like psychological preferences and your body's unique physiology, right? Some people can't eat that amount of meat. And in terms of the microbiome, it's interesting because there's been studies in the like native populations that just eat meat or, you know, well blubber or what have you. Right. And there are compensations that happen that help to increase diversity. So amazing. I don't think it's a death sentence for the microbiome by any means, especially if people's digestion is improving on it, which some people does, right? So it's right. It's strongly in the camp of it depends. Like there's going to be some people that it works for and other people that it's a disaster for. So folks are interested in it. I mean, I don't know. It's kind of experiment about with it. Like I would, for sure, you know, especially if folks like didn't have any history of like disordered eating and were like an appropriate weight and all of those things. Like, I think it's, I think it's fine to experiment around. Awesome. Okay. I love that. Thanks for sharing that. I'm like, I've got to ask her this question. (laughs) So that was amazing. Thank you so much for being with us today. And where can our audience connect with you? So, well, thank you for having me again. And my website is jillientita.com. And it's pretty much a one-stop shop. You can find my blog on there. I have a ton of free programs and educational training and resources. My book is on there. My blog is on there. My social media is on there. Everything, you can connect with me on there. You can sign up for my list. You can send me an email, jillientita.com. That's amazing. Yes, I was creeping your website earlier and you do have a ton of amazing programs on there. And I actually really do love your website. It's really beautiful and very, just very oh, thank simple you. and I love the layout. So yes, we will put all of this in the show notes. Thanks so much for being with us today, Jillian. It was great to have you. Thank you for having me. It's such a great opportunity. My pleasure. 
Okay, everybody, I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Jillian Tita. She is amazing. And if you want to grab her free programs, she's got lots of digestive programs over on her website. We are going to put the link for you in today's show notes. Head on over to holisticwellness.ca forward slash episode 70. That's seven zero. And if you have any questions, hit me up on Instagram, connect with Jillian over on Instagram, and let us know what questions you might have about digestive health. And I really hope that you guys are going to implement some of the tips and strategies that we shared here today. Getting sleep, getting outside and spending time in nature, going for walks, all of this can have such an incredible impact on your health, on your hormones, on your digestion and your gut, and make sure that you are pooping daily, you're taking your magnesium, and you are staying hydrated. Thanks everyone for tuning in today. If you haven't left us a rating and a review, head on over to iTunes or whichever platform you listen to us on and leave us a rating, leave us a review. We love to read them. We love to know we're supporting you guys and we're really making a difference and helping women to thrive. Thanks everyone. I'll chat with you all next week. 